Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Andreas Kotsadam. Andreas is a senior researcher at the Frisch Center in Oslo. Andreas, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jan. I'm very happy to be here. I listen to the podcast whenever I can, and I love it. Thank you. Well, today we're going to talk about your research on how women's employment affects intimate partner violence. But before we get into that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Yeah, sure. So, so I don't really have a research expertise. I'm interested in so many <laughs> things. I work on, on many different things. So uh, my expertise is probably in finding very good co-authors and uh, convincing people to randomize stuff. But um, I have been working on domestic violence for many years. So I've been really puzzled by the differences across regions, across countries, across villages, across families in, in domestic violence. That's really puzzled me why there is so much so much variation even within countries. And there's also, from like a sociological point of view, there's also a lot of interesting facts. So like there's a lot of cross-level interactions in these correlations. So for instance, the correlation between employment and intimate partner violence is very different depending on uh, like macro level factors in the country and in the village and so on. So I find that really fascinating. But then, um, then of course, it, it's as an economist, you often <laughs> you often want to know something causal, right? So it's a bit unsatisfactory not to know whether employment affects intimate partner violence or whether intimate partner violence affects employment, or as it's more most likely some third factor that affects both, right? So, so I've really been interested in looking for a situation where I can look at the causal effects of employment. And uh, yeah. Fabulous. Yeah. Well, convincing people to randomize stuff is a really important skill uh, that you use. (laughs) You used a great effect in this paper. So this paper is titled Jobs and Intimate Partner Violence, Evidence from a Field Experiment in Ethiopia. It's co-authored with Espen Billinger and is forthcoming in the Journal of Human Resources. So let's start with some context on Ethiopia. How common is intimate partner violence there? And what do we know about gender attitudes in that country more broadly? Yeah, so Ethiopia so is generally described as a patriarchal society. I mean, which society isn't, but relatively relatively more so, of course. And, and men often have the final say in household decision-making and so on. Female employment is quite common, and uh, like female work is common. It's common everywhere, so women are working, right? But also paid employment is, is quite common in, in Ethiopia, but it's definitely a patriarchal society. And intimate partner violence is very prevalent, unfortunately. So if we look at nationally representative data from the demographic and health surveys. We know that around one third of women have been abused by their partner. And that's uh, common to find in many countries. That seems to be a number that that goes again. That's also like the worldwide number of this. But if you look at abuse last year, that's a, a measure where you often find largest differences across countries. We find that almost as many are abused last year as, as lifetime abuse. It's really uh, the violence is like so prevalent that it happens over and over again. That's really what what seems to be distinguishing countries. And acceptance of abuse is also strikingly high. So if we ask women themselves, so again, from this national representative data, if you ask them if a husband is justified in beating his wife, if, for instance, she goes out without telling him or or refuses to have sex or uh, neglects the children and so on, over half of the women, the women themselves, think that the man is justified in, in beating his wife in, in situations like that. So it's, it's like an endemic uh, situation of, of, uh, of domestic violence, I would say. And so in this paper, you're studying employment. So why might women's employment affect intimate partner violence? What are the mechanisms you have in mind there? 
Yeah, so there are many theories about this, right? And and uh, at the most like general level, it probably depends on how you view violence, uh, whether you see it as expressive or instrumental. So, so I will explain explain what that means. So expressive violence is usually seen as uh, the men using violence to, to get some utility from it. So it can be like relieving stress or, or something like that. Instrumental violence is violence that is used to, to get something, to use it as an instrument for something. And if we think that violence is expressive, that is the, the situation where, where men gain something from, or when men uh, gain utility just by using violence, they don't use it as a means for something else, then uh, getting employment and, and resources in general should reduce domestic violence because it uh, likely improves women's outside options in these in this, uh, bargaining models that uh, economists usually play around with. Uh, but on the other hand, then if violence is instrumental, then uh, then of course, if uh, if women earn more money, there's more resources to extract. And it could also be the case that you that the man is using violence to try to reinstate his power uh, if if the female power has increased due to her having more resources. So it could be could go in, in both directions in general. And um, at an even more uh, general level, it's it's probably very important whether the relative resources between the spouses and how that looks. So if it is the case that the man is the breadwinner and then he loses his breadwinner status when, when women are starting to working, then that may be problematic. It may also be problematic if uh, if he is not working and she becomes like the main, main breadwinner. So there are these status inconsistency theories uh, saying that male identity is threatened by by uh, women working, so that may create the backlash that people often people often talk about. So there are very many theories, and in, in addition, these uh, these mechanisms are probably also likely to differ depending on contextual factors, such as if there are many women in the society that are working, or if if these are like the first uh, first women that are breaking social norms that start to work, and so on. So it's it's quite tricky to like example to know what the effects of of employment would be, but to some up it will be like this is classic donor view that if women get employed they will get empowered and violence will go down and then that can be contrasted to a more like sociological view whereas uh, the man goes crazy bananas if the woman starts working and and violence violence will go up and then of course there are theories about exposure reduction and and so on that uh, employment takes time right so if, if if the man and the women are not together when the woman is working maybe a big mechanical effect of that as well. So there are many, many theories. Okay. And then, so there had been other research on this before. <laughs> what had those previous papers told us about the effects of employment on IPV? Yeah. So first of all, there's a large correlational literature and they find different types of correlations. And and I, I really like that literature. Well, I have to say because, because I contributed to it myself. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's really, it's really interesting, right? To look at how the correlations are in different places and, and try to try to just understand the world and see and see how it is. Mm-hmm. And in general, the correlation between employment and intimate partner violence can go both direction in theory and it also does it in, in the data. But it's generally positive in, in sub-Saharan Africa. That is positive in, uh, in like the scientific sense, not the normative sense. So uh, women that are working are more likely to have been abused the last year. Uh, it's, it's the case in sub-Saharan Africa if you just look, at the, just look at the correlation. And this is also the case in Ethiopia where we are working. But then, of course, that's in the beginning. We, we don't really know from those correlations whether employment actually affects intimate partner violence or if it's the other way around. Right? So... 
there are a lot fewer causal estimates, uh, and especially when we started this project, and especially from uh, from low-income countries. So there are, there are definitely some studies from from higher-income countries, but those are mostly studies at an aggregate level, and that probably comes from the identification challenges. So it's difficult to find some uh, what we call exogenous variation at the, at the individual level, but it's easier to find those instances at the more aggregate levels. In particular, there's a series of papers that have been using so-called BARTIC or shift share experiments or shift share variation. And that's basically used in a variation in, in the local level female employment and looking at how, how that variation is, is related to, to variations in, in domestic violence. And there's a series of, of seminal papers and that's Anna Iser has this uh, seminal paper from 2010 using that in the United States and, and finding that female employment reduces abuse when she uses that strategy, and that has been replicated several times in other places. In the UK, there's a paper by Don Anderberg and quarters finding basically the same thing. But then again, there's this uh, macro-level differences again, right? So if we look at people that have used this strategy in, uh, in other types of countries, so in Mexico, for instance, female employment has been found to increase abuse using a similar strategy in a paper by Davila in, in 2018. And what's uh, most interesting, the, my, my favorite paper uh, that was published before, before we started this was the paper by Anna Turpratz. I think you had her on the, on the podcast discussing this paper. But what she did was really tackling this um, variation question right on. So she used the identification of, uh, of the effects of employment, but she did it in Spain. And when she separated out the effects in two different regions and, and looking at regions where... Uh, where men experience a loss, ident uh, loss in identity utility when their breadwinner status is threatened. So that's more traditional uh, parts of Spain. And, uh, and there she finds uh, different effects than in, in other parts of Spain. So I find that uh, um, extremely interesting. But again, those are using uh, variation at the, different, at the different levels. And it's also always the case with these observational studies. As we know, there are we learn more and more about uh, identification challenges and so on, and particularly these particular uh, instruments have been have been discussed quite a bit. We don't really know how well identified they are and and so on, and it's it's not like a randomized experiment. So there's always some some uncertainty, uh, I would say. But there are randomized experiments on, or have been randomized experiments on other issues that's very related to employment. And so there's uh, quite a large developed literature on on the effects of cash transfers, just yes, giving people money, and the effects of that on on domestic violence. And that's of course of course related if we just uh, think about the the, the resource part of, of employment. And there we find, uh, yeah, there are many, many different studies, and they basically find very different things as well. So sometimes they find uh, that cash reduces intimate partner violence, and sometimes there's no effect, uh, and so on. And uh, and if you if you take all the all the studies together and look at like meta studies and and look at uh, how how many things are significant, it's the the picture is, is kind of bleaker. So there's this uh, a review by by Buller et al from 2018 that find that uh, 
uh, taking all the 56 measures that were in, included in these studies and find that around half of them were statistically insignificant. So it's uh, it's it's not really clear even even what the, what the cash transfer literature is is saying. There's also a recent, more recent uh, review by Baranov and, and quarters that finds the uh, average reductions in general. So if you give uh, people money, that uh, that uh, domestic violence decreases. But of course, cash transfers is not employment, right? So it's uh, employment comes with a lot of other stuff than just resources. Is this um, you're you're away from the from the family? It also threatens the the traditional breadwinner role more explicitly. It leads to social networks for the women, and uh, yeah, so it may be may have a lot of other different effects than than just cash. So even if if the results from the cash transfer literature have been very clear, it's unclear how how the effects of employment would have been. Yeah. If the results had been clear, it still would not have told us this, <laughs> but there's still uncertainty there too. So what makes this so difficult to study, especially on the employment front? Is the challenge here mostly uh, not, is just tough to get the right data because this is, you know, IPV is underreported or something like that, or is it mostly an identification challenge and finding good experiments? Yeah. So it's both as uh, <laughs> as, it, as it often is, right? But I think on the data front, there is quite a lot of data. So, so as I said, it's a national representative service, especially in, uh, in poorer countries. They're, they're really good. I mean, the, the demographic and health service, they use uh, state-of-the-art uh, measures of, uh, of intimate partner violence. And of course, it's always self-reported, but that's... Uh, that's probably what we need to have because there's so much underreporting to police and then few people go to hospital and so on anyway. So, so I think mm-hmm. that the, the identification challenge is probably the most important one, especially if we're interested in like the individual level employment. So a lot of people have used, as I said, these Bartik instruments and so on, but that's that's a different question in some sense. It's, it goes more on the like the the local level employment, which is of course super interesting as well, but it's kind of a kind of a different question. So I think the identification is really tricky. Okay, so you ran a really cool field experiment offering jobs to a random subset of applicants. So tell us more about what you did. What types of jobs were you offering? Who is eligible for them? And how did you actually implement this randomization? Yeah, so this was uh, as you <laughs> understand ago. Uh, a big undertaking. Right? So it's, it's, it's took a lot of time and a lot of effort. And, and uh, again, mostly, most thanks here to my quarter, Espen Villanger, who, who's been trying to get randomization up and running in, in other parts of industries in Ethiopia before, and he has lots of contacts and so on. So it was uh, a really, yeah, it uh, took a lot of, uh, of sweat. <laughs> uh, but w- so what we did is that we cooperated with 27 large uh, factories that uh, produce um, basically shoes and garments and they export these factories they are they are international factories and we work with them to randomly assign around 1500 women to to either a job offer or not and then we collect baseline data before the randomization and then uh, and then we randomly assign the the job offers and then we collect follow-up data at at six month intervals and we are still collecting collecting data so we are now at the six-year follow-up i think so it's uh, hopefully hopefully can follow these women for for the rest of my life and uh, perhaps my kids can follow their kids and and so on but uh, but it works like this so 
when the companies want to hire in this region, so this is like semi-urban area, so it's not like another suburb, but a capital. It's a semi-urban area. So when when they want to hire, they basically just put on put out papers um, on a billboard, or they let the word spread, uh, and so on. And then a lot of uh, a lot of applicants come and want to have this job. So there's a large excess demand for these jobs. And uh, when they apply for these jobs, then the the factories first determine whether they are eligible or not, and then uh, they uh, recreate lists together with them containing applicants that are equally qualified. And within those lists, then since there are so many more that want to have these jobs, we, we randomly assign uh, the job offers to, to around half of them uh, on those lists. And that's how we do it. And I think it's, um, it may sound weird to, to like give people randomly jobs, right? But because we usually think that, well, they should be Either they should be based on need or it should be based on like meritocratic ideals or, or something like that. But the, these factories, they, they, they don't really care about uh, who they hire. They, they want to have women because they, because they think that they create less problems. But uh, apart from that, they, they, they really didn't care much about who they hire. And that means that this process was much more structured when we were there than we, we were not there. So we heard, we heard stories from our qualitative work that... When they hired without us being there to to give everyone an equal chance for these jobs, then there was a lot of sexual extortion, bribing, and so on, hiring based on good looks and so on. So I think it's a it's a setting where, um, given the given the high excess demand for jobs, I think it's quite ethical to randomly assign them and to be able to look at the causal effects of it. Yeah, that's super interesting. And then I would love to hear a little bit more of just the backstory about how this came about. I mean, it just seems, as you said, it just seems like such a huge undertaking, convincing 27 major firms to randomly allocate jobs. How did you and Espen go about this? Yeah, no. So again, so most credit to, to my fantastic quarter, Espen here. So so he's been working at Ethiopia for a long time, right? And he worked for the World Bank there before and so on. So he knows a lot of people and we have really good, really, really good local research partners. So what we wanted to do was to find situations where we could hire in bulk uh, or when the factories hire in bulk so that we could really have... Uh, Really have be able to do the the randomization, right? And then we we work with our partner in Ethiopia, that's a state research institute. So they have as part of the social mission is to study the creation uh, of, of jobs and the consequences of job creation. So the government is really interested in in looking at the the effects of these jobs. And the government is really active in in creating these industrial parks where they have these exporting firms uh, having their big factories and so on. So there's a lot of interest from the government as well, which uh, definitely helped. So that made our local partners be able to go out to these uh, to these factory parks and talk to factory factory owners and then say that we would like to do this and that the government is, has a big interest in this and that they 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 need to study like the conditions and also looking at the, the all the effects that these jobs may have and so on so so that's uh, how they probably they convinced the, the factories to be included here so that's uh, that was great for for us of course and then what the local staff did was that they monitored these uh, businesses over time that said that they were going to hire in bulk and whenever they did uh, they, we sent survey enumerators to those areas so it was uh, it was the data collection. The baseline data collection was over two years. So that's uh, because we we wanted to have around uh, fifteen hundred to two thousand women. So we we just uh, waited, and then whenever a factory in the region wanted to hire, we we went there with with enumerators. So that's um, that's how it happened. 
Okay. So what data do you use for your analysis? Yeah. So we use survey data. So uh, we create a, a baseline survey that we that we had to interview the, the women before they were randomly offered the jobs or not. And, uh, and that data consists of many different modules. Uh, so we asked them about demographic stuff, background information, measures of previous earnings, uh, and so on. And, uh, and of course, uh, we have a big bulk on, uh, on internet partner violence, which was our, our main outcomes that we were, were interested in from the start. So we, we, uh, we use this, it's called the conflict tactics day scale. So instead of asking people like, oh, have you been abused, uh, which may be uh, culturally different in different areas and it's unclear what you what you mean with that and so on we asked them very specific questions about actions that have happened to them so we asked them if they have ever been slapped and if they say yes we asked them if it happened during the last uh, three months uh, and we also ask uh, who did it and if it's the partner and so on so we so based on that we we focus mostly on the physical abuse and uh, physical and sexual abuse from um from a partner that's uh, that's our main measure so so that's the data and it was around uh, around 1500 women that we randomly assigned to treatment and control so we interviewed even more actually so we interviewed around 1900 women but uh, the field is crazy right so a lot of stuff can happen there were around around 400 of these uh, women they, they were not randomly assigned to jobs so in one place, it was just uh, just an error. They, they should have been, but it never happened. And then in another place, the internet was down, so we couldn't uh, get the lists in time and so on. But that's uh, <laughs> that's the field for you. But uh, but around fifteen hundred women, and then we actually managed to track uh, many of them. Of course, not everyone, but we have around um, around thirteen hundred for the first follow up, and then we lose more and more women over time. So. Uh, in particular, if if women are moving, a lot of these women are moving to to Saudi Arabia or the Middle East in general to to work, and uh, yeah, then we just we can't find them anymore. But we we managed to track quite a few of them. Okay, so in this sample at baseline, how common was IPV for the women you interviewed? Yeah, so it was very very similar to uh, to what we had found in the in the natural representative data in general. So around one third of the women we surveyed had been abused uh, ever, uh, that is physical or sexual abuse by their partner, and uh, around twenty percent had been so during the last three months. So we used three months because we weren't sure when we could go and uh, and survey them again. So we, we knew that we, we, we had targeted to go there after six months, but uh, of course, uh, stuff can happen. So we wanted to, to have some leeway there. But around 20% had been abused by their partners in the last three months. And then in terms of the follow-up, what outcome measures are you most interested in? Yeah, so our main main pre-registered outcome is this uh, physical or sexual abuse by a partner during the last three months. But then we, of course, measure a lot of other things as well. I mean, we have this uh, fantastic opportunity to, to look at a broad range of broad range of questions, right? So we, we, of course, measure other types of abuse. We measure emotional abuse and controlling behavior. And then trying to anticipate uh, like possible mechanisms for different types of results beforehand. We also want to think about what, what could the mechanism have been. So we ask a lot of questions about different types of mechanisms as well and attitudes. We ask about spending and time use and a whole range of things. But, but I think it's important to say that 
that we 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 have our pre-registered main outcomes that is this physical or sexual abuse because uh, we measure so many things in the survey that of course we will be able to find effects on many different things and for different subgroups and so on but uh, in order to be able to use p-values and inference correctly we we pre-register some of it and that's always hard right it's always hard to choose ex ante what you're gonna commit to <laughs> commit to to actually testing rigorously with the with your p-values and then of course you can do a lot of exploratory work but then that should ideally be replicated uh, in order to be to be sure about the to be sure about the effects i would say so yeah physical and sexual abuse was our main outcome okay all right so let's talk about the results what was the effect of a job offer on employment and earnings so basically a first stage here yeah so that that was we were really we didn't know what to expect. Right? So there was this previous paper by Chris Blattman and Stefan Durkan. They had a randomization in Ethiopia in more urban areas with both men and women, and they found that they didn't even find a first stage after six months. Mm. They found that most people had quit. So 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 we were really unsure what we're gonna find at the first stage. We thought that we had a higher likelihood due to the semi-urban nature of, of our areas and also because we only had women. And, and uh, we did find a large effect, uh, I would say, on, on the probability of, uh, of having a wage job after six months. So uh, it's not perfect compliance by any, by any means, and we wouldn't expect that or even want that, right? So remember, these are women that everyone are applying for a job. So a lot of the women in the control group are, are still applying for other jobs and, and manage to get other jobs. And we definitely don't want to restrict their ability to, to have other jobs. So around 30%, 29% in the control group managed to get another job. And uh, in the treatment group, uh, not everyone started the job that they were offered. So it increases to around 70% for the treatment group. So there is a, a very clear uh, and, and strong first stage on unemployment, but it's definitely not uh, 100%. So a lot of women don't want to start because uh, after they are offered a job, they they get to hear about their earnings and how much they have to work and, and so on. So, uh, yeah. Seems a lot less pleasant than they thought. <laughs> definitely. So the earnings are quite... So, I mean, it's, it's obviously a lot of money for... So compared to the control group, they get richer, but it's not, uh, they expected more. So they, they did. So they earn around $38 per, per month and work uh, six days uh, a week. And uh, yeah, the working conditions are, are, are quite harsh. But we see large effects on earnings. I mean, if we, if we compare the, the treated and control after six months, we see that the treated women, they have around double earnings than the than a control women and also they have higher incomes as well if we take incomes from any source and then going back to this like status hierarchies and so on our status um, uh, within the household we see that that uh, yeah so uh, women's share of within couple earnings is increasing a lot the probability that she earns more than her husband increases uh, from 18 percent to 32 percent there is really a really, really large uh, first stage in terms of both employment and earnings. And uh, furthermore, that, that seems to really be the case also over time. So even when we go back after 18 months, we see that uh, there's still a very clear difference in uh, between the treated and controlled. So then more and more women are actually quitting work and more and more women in the control group manage to get other 
jobs, but there's still a 17 percentage points difference after, after one and a half years. And as I said, we're still collecting data. We know that even after three years, there's a difference between those initially randomly assigned to, to these jobs and not. Interesting. Okay. So your, your experiment worked here. <laughs> you were able to experimentally increase employment and earnings. So what was the effect of a job offer on subsequent intimate partner violence? Yeah. So the results shows that, so, 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 as you said, like there's a strong first stage, so women, women start working more. But then we find that there's basically no effect on intimate partner violence. So that's, that's difficult to say, right? Null finding is always tricky, but we don't find a statistically significant effect. And we can also react kind of smallish effects. So if we pool our, all our data together, for instance, we can reject that the effect would be larger and positive uh, more than one percentage points that is it's very unlikely that uh, that this led to more violence against women at least we're, we're quite confident on that we can react that and we can react that the effect is very large and uh, protective uh, so we can react uh, medium-sized effects and uh, we really don't find any any effects on, on physical abuse we find an effect on emotional abuse in the first follow-up data but then that effect doesn't really seem to be there over time. It goes a bit up and down. And here it's also important to say that while pre-registered, that we were going to look at that outcome, it's not, it wasn't our main outcome. And we, we look at many different things. So it may, be, it may just be a, a fluke. But, uh, but taken at face value, we see that uh, the emotional violence is reduced by 5.3 percentage points. And also all different components of uh, emotional violence seem to go down in the in the short run at least like humiliation threats and insults uh, from the partner were were reduced so uh, yeah so so a mixed bag but uh, in general uh, on our main outcome um, no real effect i was a bit surprised uh, i was expecting actually that would be positive for women to get these jobs uh, Positive in the sense of reducing yeah. violence or increasing. Yes, violence. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So positive in the in the normal people sense that uh, yeah, it would, <laughs> it would reduce violence. Yeah. So I was really expecting that, but uh, no. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Null effect papers are always, especially when you put all this effort into running an RCT and you get a null effect. It's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> it's mostly for publication reasons. You know, it's going to yeah. be harder to publish. Everybody oh, wants to see stars on the regression, but it's yeah. important, important to know uh, if it doesn't have an effect. Were there any differences across different types of women? Uh, surprisingly little is, I guess, the, the, the total takeaway. So we did a lot, right? So we uh, interacted treatment with all our baseline uh, baseline control variables. So, for instance, we don't see different in the effect depending on whether the women had worked before, whether they had been abused before, uh, whether they earned more than their partner before or not, whether the partner partner was working. So, really, not much. And also, we did this. We used this generic machine learning approach to like let the computer try to find uh, heterogeneity for us because it can do so much better. <laughs> And also more honest in a sense, because it splits the sample and, and like data mines in one sample, then test it in the other other sample and so on. We didn't really find anything there either. So we found some effects on um, when we looked at uh, like bargaining power, so baseline bargaining power, we found that those uh, 
women that had more bargaining power at baseline that it was more protective for them to to get work but that's i mean that's one out of uh, i don't know how many variables we tested and uh, so just based on that is a bit a bit unclear it of course fits uh, some previous theories but again i mean there's so many theories here whatever we find would fit some, fit some theory and uh, and i also think that those results weren't super robust when we um, play around with the coding and like uh, when we code uh, bargaining power in different ways and so on. So I would say that the total takeaway was for me that was surprisingly little heterogeneity because a null finding could have been because it affects some women in one direction and other women in another direction, right? But we, we, we don't find that. Actually, it seems to be um, equally, equally zero for, uh, <laughs> for, for most of them, yeah. So, so another reason you might get a null result is just that like your outcome measure of IPV it's not as good as you you thought it might be. Um, and and as you discussed before, a major challenge in studying outcomes like intimate partner violence is that it could be underreported. So we might not feel comfortable telling surveyors that they're victims. And even more challenging interventions like employment might change their willingness to report, which then makes it difficult to tell if any effects on reported IPV are due to changes in reporting or changes in actual IPV, or if those things are canceling each other out somehow. So you do something really clever here. You use list experiments to address this. Tell us how those experiments work and what you find. Yeah, sure. So, so I agree in general. It, it is an important point that intimate partner violence is difficult to measure and that it may be underreporting and so on. And, and in particular, this fact that, uh, yeah, so, so what you get when you do a survey is, is you get the, both the abuse and the rep- propensity to report it. It's a function of those things. And we can't really separately identify the two, right? So so uh, we may worry that the people underreport, but we may also worry that the employment affects affects reporting, as you said. So I think that's um, that's always a very very tricky question. But I was still want to go back and like so on a general level, like this underreporting. I think it's um, it's probably a, a more problem in some settings than in others. Uh, so as I said before, like. Partner violence is really accepted in these regions. It's not really that stigmatized. Uh, people think that husbands are allowed to to beat their to beat their wives, and and also that the just the, the high levels of reporting that we actually do see suggests that it's not so stigmatized. I'm not sure how much uh, underreporting um, there actually is. It, there's probably some for sure, but I'm not sure how big of a problem it is in uh, in all parts of the world, at least. That's a great point. Yeah. But then economists usually want to see like either either they want to see broken bones or they want to see like hospital <laughs> hospital data or they want to see like police police uh-huh. data, right? Yeah. In the data for data purposes. We don't actually yeah. like seeing broken exactly. bones. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> good good clarification. Yeah, that's true. So uh so we're crazy, but not uh, not that crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But that's just non-existent, right? In these um, in these settings. But also looking at like the US or or, or Norway, right? Is is even there, there you can really talk about underreporting, right? So we know that people, when we do uh, the National Crime Survey in Norway, we know that most people don't report the the violence they have been exposed to. And and why would like the 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 selective underreporting be so different there? I think there's a bit of um. Uh, I don't know. So economists are, are usually too confident in like uh, register data as compared to survey data. There's some some skepticism against survey data, but I actually think that survey data is probably the best we can have when when we want to look at um, at domestic violence. 
But that's uh, yeah. So that's that's some uh, on a general level. But then of course there are these uh, problems, and we we want to investigate them as good as we can. So we use these uh, list experiments. So it's sometimes also called like uh, item count technique. And uh, the way this works is that you um, you randomly divide a sample, and uh, and then you instead of asking people uh, what have actually happened to them, you, you ask uh, people how many of these things have you experienced. Uh, and then you ask them about the four things that you really don't care about. So you ask them, well, have you been to the capital? Uh, can you borrow money from your family members? Uh, do you have poor friends? Uh, have you been to the cinema? Like stuff we really don't care about, right? Uh, in this <laughs> in this setting, right? So and then we, we get a measure from that. So so the control group only gets those questions. Half of the sample only get those four statements, and and say that they answer on average that well, two of those things are true. Right, so they, they on average they, they answer two. Then we give the exact same questions to the treatment group. So we randomly assign the other half to get the exact same four questions. But in addition, they get the question that we're actually interested in, or the statement that we're actually interested in. So we ask them how many of these statements um, uh, apply to you, and then we have our our additional question that is about uh, about uh, intimate partner violence. So say that. In the control group again, that around two on average were the were the number that uh, that applied to these control questions, and then if we would find an average of two point five in the in the treatment group, we could be quite confident to say that well, this is driven by by this extra question, and that would imply that around fifty percent of the women are abused by using this technique. And then that can be compared to uh, the, the answer you get when you when you ask them directly. And uh, this has been used uh, quite a bit in, in different settings. And when we used it, we didn't find uh, any, any differences between whether we asked them directly or whether we used this more like hidden technique. So first of all, was it clear, the, the description of the, of the list experiment? Or should I clarify? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think just to clarify too, like, I think, um, you know, one, one reason this is, this is a neat approach is that, you know, for any individual woman, you don't know if she was, if she answered yes or no to the IPV question, but you get this group average, which is what you really need in a setting like this to be able to see, you know, are the survey data giving you an accurate measure or just as an outcome measure more broadly for the group. So it's really useful for researchers. Yeah, that's a, that's a good clarification. I think it's uh, that's the thing, right? So we wanna we wanna get this uh, measure, and then once we have the averages, we can different. We, even if we can't say about uh, specific women, we can look at specific groups of women and so on, mm -hmm. and compare compare averages. I think that's a, that's a good point. But also, I think it's uh, there are some downsides, right? So, so the first biggest downside, I think, is that it is extremely costly in terms of power. I think that. Uh, uh, I did not appreciate that before I before I started this. So uh, so what people do usually then is like okay, so they use this list experiment and then they compare it to their other measure and then they say oh it's not statistically significantly different. But then of course since you <laughs> since you are using a measure that has a lot of noise by by construction, it's mm -hmm. very likely that you have a lot of variance uh, and it's very yes yeah, so it's very easy to find that they're not statistically significantly. Different. So in our Got setting, it. they were really similar as well, right? But that's, I think that was underappreciated by me. That's something I learned from a policy paper uh, from Blair and co authors. Uh, mm -hmm. They demonstrate that list experiments, they frequently require 14 times more observations to produce oh, wow. prevalence estimates. Yeah. I mean, that's not what we have in a, in a normal, in a normal. Yeah. So I think, yeah. 
yeah, I'm, I'm a bit on the fence. There are other 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 ways of measuring this uh, that may be better. So uh, Johannes Haushofer and co-authors, they have a recent paper where they look at at cash transfers and psychotherapy, and they look at the effects on violence, and they use like an envelope task. So instead of <laughs> using uh, using um, list experiments or something else, people like report in uh, by putting their answers into an envelope, and that may also conceal it, hmm. uh, conceal the answer. And so I think uh, this is probably an area where we can do more. Yeah. Yeah, I love these different approaches to like getting people to uh, that are incentivizing people to tell the truth in these settings where they might not otherwise want to. Very neat. But also, I want to say, I don't think the problem is super. I think it's the problem has been exaggerated, and I think the solutions have been <laughs> have mm. been oversold. So I think, uh, I think, yeah, the list experiments is very problematic since it's so underpowered in general. And yeah. uh, but I think the problem, given that it's so accepted in these areas, so I think the problem is probably not that big. Yet. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I definitely take the point that this is. I mean, it sounds like in Ethiopia, underreporting is not a challenge, but. I would be interested to see even just experiments that like compare the outcomes of list experiments or envelope exper- experiments or something like that mm. with official survey data in a variety of different places, looking at like sexual assault, domestic violence. Like it just seemed like it'd be a bigger problem in other places. Oh, yes, I agree. And also like before and after Me Too, oh, like other uh-huh. like structural changes would be yeah. super interesting. Yeah. But, yeah, yeah, let's yeah. see if... Uh, Research idea for people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If listeners can send in all their, <laughs> all right. their uh, experiments, we can, uh, we can do it. Yeah. It or out. someone else can. Yeah. Great. Totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So what are the policy implications of the results of, of this study? What should policymakers and practitioners take away from, from your results? Yeah. So in general, policymakers should probably never take too much away from a single paper, but in in mm-hmm. terms of uh, if you take our results as face value, I think that we know that female employment is important, right? And that's like whatever we would have found here would have been like okay, female employment is important. If we would have found that it would have increased violence, we we should have to think about other ways to reducing that and put in like other types of measures. Right? But but here we find that um, that we can really reject that it has negative effects. That is. In the in the normative sense, we can really react that uh, that it increases violence, and that's good, right? That mean really means that the, um, it's even more likely that the most of the positive effects that come from that women are working. And, I, and here I'm thinking about especially long-term effects about how this um, probably in the longer run affects attitudes towards gender equality, towards family life, and so on. That in the long run are probably likely to to reduce violence uh, quite a bit. So we know that there are a lot of positive effects of female employment on kids and on uh, on earnings, definitely, and so on. But there has been this worry that, well, perhaps it uh, perhaps it uh, increases abuse, and uh, our results at least show that uh, show that they do not. So that's um, that, that's a very very good result, I think. That's uh, that's uh, yeah. But then, of course, there are a lot of caveats, right? So the so uh, our results are very peculiar. It's a very specific setting. That's always the case. But but remember here, we are looking at women that are applying for jobs, right? So 
what do people mean when they say effects of female employment? People probably have in mind like a, a broader construct than what we're actually identifying. So it may, for instance, be the case that it is it's, it's in the chain of, of actually women getting work that it that this happens earlier. Um, I'm not very clear now, but, uh, but like, so when you start to negotiate at home that you are going to apply for a job, for instance, it may be that that has, uh, has an effect, but uh, that's not something that we are able to capture here. Yeah. So if once a woman decides to go out and apply for a job, then that's the the decision that prompts more violence at home or something. Then the control that group and treatment right. group are going to be the same here. Yeah. yeah that's interesting. Yeah. yeah. I know you said it much better than me. Thank you. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and also, so, so, so I've, been, I've been a bit like pushing on the fact that we're, we're estimating individual effects of, uh, of employment. And that's mm-hmm. true, right? And that's, that's interesting because some of the theories really have to do with individual things. When I think about uh, these things, I think that, well, perhaps it's, it is the local level that is important. I mean, from a bargaining framework, it's definitely the case that, that if women have more options, that the outside options are not determined by whether you're actually working or not, it's whether you can work. So I think that perhaps female employment at the aggregate level is the more interesting, or at least it's at least another interesting uh, level to analyze this. So I think that uh, there are definitely some things with uh, with our experiment that does not speak to to everything, as no study does, of course. Right, but uh, right, but, uh, right. but it's important to keep that in mind. I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think a bunch of the the studies you highlighted at the beginning were looking at more of this like local or community level, and I think you're right. We like we needed this individual level experiment to be able to see because a lot of the mechanisms we're hypothesizing here are really individual like household level mechanisms or channels and so i think it's really interesting that you don't see these big unintended costs that people have been really worried about at least in this setting um so yeah i think it's really reassuring so you've been working on this study for a while <laughs> have, have any other papers related to this topic come out since you all first started this project oh yes a lot right <laughs> so so this is a fascinating time to be an economist right there's so many smart people working on so important topics uh, it's just it's amazing uh, uh, yeah it's a it's a great time to be alive as you say it's, uh, <laughs> it's great so there's been there's been a lot of papers. So first of all, there's been several of these Baltic type studies. I find a particularly interesting one is one by Sanna Bergvall. She uses Swedish registered data, and she finds a backlash in in Sweden. So so remember, so when we started this, so so my framework or our framework was more like okay, it's probably the case that uh, that employment is most protective in settings where gender equality is already good, and that it could be really lead to more abuse in settings where uh, where acceptance of violence is high and so on. So we expected that Ethiopia would be like a case where we would be more likely to find that, that that employment leads to more violence. But now I'm not so sure what I would expect anymore taking the literature that has come out uh, come out since uh, since we started so for instance I, I would not have expected this backlash finding that um, that Sanna finds uh, finds in Sweden so she finds that uh, then when the local labor market conditions are good for women, then uh, more women are are abused in, in Sweden, and that's uh, that was uh, very very surprising, but but interesting. And then there's also been other kinds of studies. So there's um there's been uh, like uh, difference in different studies. One one study I really like is uh, by uh, Denise Sanin. I, I have no idea how you pronounce uh, her name but it's uh, this a very interesting study on on coffee mills in Rwanda so use uh, using um, 
a government-induced expansion of coffee mills and using like a different diff to, to look at before and after and treated and non-treated areas at a really local level with, with geo, geospatial data and finds that women uh, are more likely to work for cash in, in the areas where there are these uh, coffee mills and they are less likely to report domestic violence. So, so again, the result in the opposite direction. And uh, I mean, my prior is basically flat now. I, I have no idea what to expect. So we don't find anything in any direction and there are so many good quality studies finding different things i'm really hoping for uh, even more studies of course and um, yeah let's see let's see in uh, five to six years what uh, what the research says then yeah well so along those lines what what's the research frontier here what do you think the next big questions are that uh that you and and others in this space will be thinking about in those years ahead yeah, no, so I, th- I still think it's unclear the effects of employment. And I would like to see, especially more field experiments in, in, in different settings, uh, preferably pre specified and uh, according to all standards, uh, high powered uh, and so on. And that, that would be very useful. But there's a lot of other, other things as well that people are starting to work on and that are. Uh, that are very fascinating. So uh, yeah, so so we are hoping to start up a new randomization of uh, of jobs to men in Ethiopia instead of to women. So there are some factories that hire men instead that we're hoping to um, hoping to to work with. And uh, well, that would take ten years, but then we would know if it's <laughs> if it's a different effect for for when men get jobs than than when women get jobs in the in the, like a very similar setting. But otherwise, I think it's. Uh, as I said, it's, this is a very active research area. So I think that uh, Abby Adams Pressel and, and co-authors, uh, I think you had Emily Nixon on your podcast, right? So they have they are looking at like the dynamics of abuse using Finnish registered data. I think that's that's very promising. I'm sure that's going to spark a lot of a lot of new um, new research uh, as well. Looking at like the when we see that women have been abused, what happens before that and what happens after? Like, uh, especially with employment, I think it's like a lot of controlling behavior, limiting women to to work and thereby the man gets more power and can be more abusive in a sense. I think those are are really interesting. Uh, I think uh, a person to follow in this space is uh, Sophia Amaral in general. You had her on the podcast as well. She's doing a lot of interesting work with like the police, right? So both in the UK and in India and I think that um, in order to reduce violence, I think the law enforcement is probably probably very important as well, and a, a huge problem in in many settings that I'm I'm working uh, at least. We have um, other really neat uh, new papers. So Eleonora Garneri and Anatur Pratz uh, again. They have a paper on on conflict related sexual violence. So they they look at uh, sexual violence during conflicts, which is obviously a, a huge problem and a human rights uh, infliction. And uh, and they find that uh, gender gender attitudes and the differences in gender attitudes among the like uh, uh, opposing groups really really seems to be important for the sexual violence in conflict. I find that uh, super fascinating as well. And then of course the bigger research area we talk about gender based violence, all the the new research on sexual harassment is uh, I find it extremely fascinating. And uh, I really <laughs> want to see in a couple of years what what comes out of that. I think it's it's just such a growing field. So yeah, yeah, totally agree. Yeah, and the the paper that I had Emily on Emily Nixon to talk about was her the, the paper on sexual harassment that, that team had done. Yeah, that's done. great. And they they now they've yeah. been churning out papers <laughs> yeah. on, on this general topic. They have this amazing data 
And I agree. There are so many really smart, creative people working on these on these topics right now. Yeah, and it's, it's been fantastic. really fun to watch what people are figuring out. Well, thank you so much. My guest today has been Andreas Katsadam from the Frisch Center in Oslo. Andreas, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you. It was great. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers and other contributors. Probable Causation is produced by Doliac Initiatives, a 501c3 nonprofit. So all contributions are tax deductible. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider supporting us via Patreon or with a one-time donation on our website. Please also consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. This helps others find the show, which we very much appreciate. Our sound engineer is John Kerr with production assistance from Nefertari El Sheik. Our music is by Werner and our logo was designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks. Thank you.